Please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you'll find this on page 259 in the church Bibles. Second Samuel chapter 7, and last uh, time we looked at the first half of this chapter, uh, but because it's so connected, we want to begin our reading this, morning, this evening at the beginning of the chapter to set the context. Second Samuel chapter 7 at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over, all, over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all of these words. And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. 
Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David had become king over Israel. He had united the Israelites together and he had taken uh, the city of Jerusalem. And it tells us that when David had rest from all his enemies, after he had built his palace of cedar, uh, that David was musing over what to do about the ark. The ark of God was not being honored as he thought in comparison with his own state in a palace. And you remember how David was uh, musing over the idea of building some house for the ark in order to honor the Lord as king over Israel. But before David could do those plans and carry them out, we were told that the prophet Nathan came to him with the word of God. And the prophet Nathan interrupted those plans. And the Lord really objected to the idea of David building a house for God. But instead, God would build a house for David. That the Lord's plans were uh, to be realized rather than David's intentions himself. And we remember that last time as we looked at that promise to David, we really were highlighting two things. We were highlighting the magnitude of that promise. This promise that is given to David here is one that frames really Old Testament revelation. And we underscored the magnitude, the greatness of the promise by seeing the connections it had with God's promise to Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis, we are told about generation after generation that was living under the curse of sin, that a people was longing for blessing. But it is only in Abraham that we begin to hear the promise of that blessing being communicated again. That God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Not only was Abraham promised that his name would be great, but he was promised that he would be given a land. There was a land appointed for him and for his offspring. It was the land between the river Egypt and the great river Euphrates. That was to be given to the offspring of Abraham. But here, this promise that is being given to David echoes those themes of being, having his name being made great, of, of being a blessing and of receiving a blessing, uh, no longer being disturbed by one's uh, neighbors or uh, enemies, and of having a land appointed to them. Those allusions here are picked up uh, and appointed now to David, which highlights that the promises to Abraham were not exhausted uh, up until this point, and that they extend even beyond David himself, because they have a future focus to them. And so there's something of a magnitude of the promise because it's structuring all of God's revelation. But we also said not only was it something great that was being promised to David, it was also focusing us on the Messiah. Because it talks about what will happen after David's lifetime. When your days are over, David, when you die, your offspring will come up after you and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom will endure forever. And so David was being told something that was not exhaustively fulfilled even in Solomon, but rather was ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus himself, the offspring of David, uh, whose kingdom endures forever. Well, this evening we want to come back to this passage and we want to think about David's reaction uh, to God's word. And we want to see that as David reacts to it, he reacts with amazement. And that David's reaction is leading us in how we should respond to God's promises ourselves. That amazement should characterize the life of every one of us as we think about God's grace that is shown to us. We want to think about these verses, the second half of the chapter, by thinking about David's response in terms of praise and then David's response in terms of petition. In other words, what is it that marks David's response? And then what does David ask God to do? Well, first then, there is his uh, note of praise. It tells us there in verse 18 that David, when he heard these words, he went in and sat, or he went in and remained before the Lord. You remember that when they were bringing the ark into Jerusalem, that everything David was doing was described with the same refrain of before the Lord. David danced. But it tells us that David danced before the Lord. Meaning by that, that what David was doing was not centering back on himself. What David was doing was not concerned about his own image or his own reputation. But David was doing what he was doing because he wanted to honor the Lord. And he wanted to make clear to people, even as he wore the ephod, that the true king of Israel has now come. That he was acknowledging the Lord as king over all. And so everything David was doing there, the before the Lord, was acknowledging God over all. His will, his presence is transcendent, and it is the priority. And now here, as it says that David went and remained, or he went and sat before the ark, it's telling us again something of David's attitude. David's reaction here, and this is important that we highlight it, David's reaction to this word is not one of bitterness, 
David doesn't get uptight or frustrated or object that his plans are being squashed. David doesn't insist on going ahead with what he has because he's the one in the driver's seat. But rather, when David hears of what God is planning, David accepts it. He accepts it as God's word, as he hears it from the prophet Nathan, and he's willing to embrace it. And so he, his first uh, response here is one of acknowledgement of God's word. It transcends his own plans. He's willing to accept what is being told to him. But it's not just one of acceptance, but it is one of amazement. As David here prays this prayer, you notice that David embraces everything that has been said to him. When Nathan was sent to David, he was told, go and tell my servant, David. David's role is still a servant. He is God's servant because God is king over Israel. But you notice that when David prays this prayer, again and again, he refers to God as the Lord God, the master Lord. And he refers to himself 10 times as servant. That's who I am. I am servant. And I accept that role. I embrace that role. And I accept your word. So he is one who is accepting what is being said to him. But it is also one uh, of amazement. Everything that is being promised in these verses, it didn't go over David's head. It's not as though there's a hidden gem in here and David missed it. And then later centuries uncovered it. David saw something wonderful being promised to him. And he was amazed by these promises. Because notice as he goes on to say, he says, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great uh, while. Uh, And he talks about how the Lord, you have brought me thus far. David's acknowledging, I'm king here. And and that's an amazing thing. And yet it's a small thing in terms of the plans of my God. The Lord's plans have even greater things in store. And so David's here reaction is one of recognized amazement of something great being communicated. And that's communicated even further in verse 19. Notice at the end of that verse, he says, You have spoken uh, about my ser- of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, if you have a different translation, you might notice that the ending of that verse is translated in different ways. Some English translations even translate it as a question. Because in the context, David is expressing awe. He is expressing amazement. And so you can see how it would be fitting for David to ask a question here. You've talked about great things to come for a while. And then to think about a question emerging. But in the original, there actually is no indicator, no grammar that would indicate this is a question. And so it's better to just take it as a statement. And what David says here is, is what you have said, God, is instruction for man. That word instruction is the normal word that refers to Torah or law or teaching from God. So what David is saying here is, is, What you have revealed is revelation. What you have said is instruction, but it's instruction for mankind. David saw this news as something that was of interest and something that concerned the world, 
that all the nations were to take heed to this revelation. Just as Abraham was promised, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. David is hearing these promises and saying, this is how the nations are going to be blessed. They are going to be blessed through an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will never be destroyed because God's steadfast love endures forever. And David now says, this is news. This is, this is a message that needs to go out to the world. And so David grasps this is something big. And he is amazed as he responds to it. It is instruction uh, for the benefit of all mankind. Uh, a kingdom that endures forever and ultimately concerns all humanity. So God's blessing reaching the ends of the earth would be realized now through the offspring of David. So you can see how David is amazed by the word that has been communicated to him. David, your offspring will have a kingdom that endures. My love will never depart from your house. And David now is simply responding about that word of promise in amazement. You've already done great things. And yet you say even greater things lie ahead. And he's astonished by it. But notice that David's astonishment, his amazement, is not just about what is being said to him, but the basis for why it is being said to him. David goes on and he says, what, what else can I say? As though he's, he's actually almost speechless about how do I respond to this? He says, you know your servant. But then look at what he says going forward. He says, uh, you know your servant, O Lord, because of your promise and according to your own heart, uh, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. As David is reflecting on all this greatness, he has become king over Israel. There will emerge an everlasting kingdom. As David is reflecting on all of these promises, David recognizes, conscientiously he recognizes that it is based on God's grace. David became king not because he was so crafty. It wasn't because he was so shrewd that he was able to outmaneuver Saul in every match of chess, as it were. It's not because he was more clever. David became king because of God's promise. When David was still a ruddy boy, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was being consecrated as the Lord's servant as a young boy. The promise of God preceded David. Before he had done anything, he was already chosen to be God's king. And so David is appealing to that. All this greatness has come about because of your promise. It's not because of what I've done. It's not because of anything I can look at within my own life. It's your promise that has brought this about. But then notice as well, he says it's not just because of the promise, but he says it's according to your own heart. Next week is Mother's Day. Many of you young people might make cards for your mom. But when you make a card for your mom on Mother's Day, you're doing it because you want to. Uh, you're not going to get in trouble if you don't give your mom a Mother's Day card. But you would do it because you say, I want to do this. I want to bring joy to my mother. I want to express how much I appreciate my mom. 
But here it's highlighting, David is saying, God is doing this because he's purposed it according to his own will. Because he wants to do it. Because it's according to his own heart. And so David here is highlighting, not only has God promised great things, but I can't see anything in my life to justify why God is going to do this. This is according to God's promise. It's according to his own sovereign choice. It's God's own will that is being revealed here. And so David is uh, amazed at it all. And he says, therefore, you are great, O Lord. And he uh, highlights how it shows God above all the idols uh, of the world, that God alone is worthy of praise. Not only for declaring what will happen in the future, but because God is doing this according to his own gracious purposes. David's first question was, who am I? Who am I that I should be the recipient of this kind of favor, this kind of blessing? But his second question was, and who is like this people, Israel? Who are the recipients of God's favor as well? He sees how God's promised blessing uh, shapes and impacts uh, the people as a whole. And you see how he uh, marvels and he is amazed at what this all means for the people of Israel. In verses 23 and 24, he highlights those things. He says they are a people who have been redeemed. Looking back on God's redemption uh, from Egypt, God redeemed them from uh, slavery. But it says there, not only did he redeem them from slavery, he redeemed them for himself. That's, that's an important point, that when we think about redemption, it is to be freed from something, but freed unto something else. We're not only freed from slavery, but we are freed unto the Lord. So Dale, Dale, uh, Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. He says, we might say that the Lord grants his people freedom, but not independence. They are to belong to him. True freedom is not to do whatever you want. True freedom is to live as you were called to live. To live unto the Lord. And so here, uh, David is remarking over God's gracious purpose with the people. They are a redeemed people, but they are also a preserved people. Notice how he uses the language. David's kingdom is described as an everlasting kingdom. That they are a people who are marked by uh, being established. They are a forever, uh, part of a forever kingdom. And now David takes up that language of being established and of being forever uh, and applying it to the people of Israel. Because God's kingdom endures forever, his people endure forever. Because his people are, because his kingdom is established, his people are made firm as well. And so David here is celebrating, not only has God redeemed his people in the past, but they are a people who are protected in God's covenant love. And then he celebrates not only their preservation, but he celebrates their privilege, that they are his people and that he is their God, that they belong to the Lord on the basis of his promises to them. They are his people and he is their God. God's blessings have been showered upon the Israel, on the people of Israel, according to his words. They have been redeemed and set apart from the nations. And according to God's promises, they would be 
preserved. But you know, those blessings carry over into the new covenant. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those same blessings are true of us. That those who believe in the Lord Jesus have been redeemed from the curse of sin because Christ was cursed on the cross. They have been redeemed from the curse of the law and they have been set free unto service to the Lord. That those who belong to the Lord Jesus are not their own, but they have been bought with a price. And so we are to be living unto and devoted unto God. So they are a redeemed people. But also they are described as a preserved people. Christians are people who are preserved in God's grace. Jesus himself says, whoever looks on the Son of Man and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, I will raise him up. They will have eternal life on the basis of my word. They are preserved on the authority of the king. And they are a people not only who are redeemed, not only are they a people who are preserved, but they are a people who are privileged because they can address God, not only as God, but as their God and as their father. That's a bold thing to do, to think of God and to address him as father. And yet that's what Jesus teaches us to do. When you pray, pray our father who art in heaven. The only reason that we should have the boldness to address God as father is because we're doing so on the authority of Jesus' word. Because we're trusting in the righteousness of Christ and we're coming in his name. But that's receiving God's word in faith. And here, David is remarking with amazement that he is the recipient of God's grace, not because he was shrewd, but because of God's own will. As he thinks about the recipients of the covenant community, he says they are a people unlike any other people because they are a redeemed people. They have been delivered. They are people who are preserved and protected by God's grace. They are a people who are privileged because God is their God. And if we're trusting in the Lord Jesus this evening, then we should be able to see with amazement ourselves of what has been given to us. We should be truly amazed that we can not only approach God, but that we are blessed for no reason of ourselves. What's a sign that we begin to understand grace? When we begin saying things like, David, who am I? When we're not focusing on something about ourselves that makes us worthy of God's affection or of God's favor, but rather we're ending constantly in God, that our end always goes back to the greatness of God. That's when we're beginning to understand grace. Because it's not just what God has purposed to do, but the why he purposes to do it. That is so gracious and amazing. And so David here in this prayer, he is really just expressing praise. He's marveling over what has been promised in the word, but he's also marveling over the grace that is embedded in it. I don't deserve any of this, and neither does Israel. And if we're Christians this evening, 
we should have that same attitude. We don't deserve it. It's only because of God's grace that we can be the recipients in this way of all his benefits. So there is uh, the, the response of praise. But then secondly, there is also the response of petition. In this prayer of David, there's actually only one request that he makes. This whole prayer he is only offering up one thing that he asks of God. Maybe very different than our prayers when we oftentimes are heavy on our requests. David asks for one thing. What is the one thing that David asks for in this prayer? It's in verse 25. He says, And now, O Lord, confirm your word and do as you have promised. Do what you said. That is the expression of faith. When our desire is for God to do what he has said. Biblical, true, saving faith is not just an awareness of what the Bible says, but it is leaning on that promise and depending on that promise to be realized. It's recognizing the truth that I am a sinner, but there is a promise in God's word of blessing, and we're leaning on God to do what he said in order that that blessing would be realized. David here is leaning on that promise by saying, do what you have promised to do. Bring it to pass according to your will. That's, that's how we operate, isn't it? Uh, even as from the time we're children. Uh, children will, uh, will remind their parents of what they said they would do. You promised that we would go to the park. You promised that we, might, uh, that we would go out for ice cream. They will appeal to the promises. And a parent will appreciate when they are reminded of those things to act according to what they have said. And God wants us to do the same thing to bring his promises back to him and to plead with him to do what he has said. Isn't that what Jesus himself is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're sitting here wondering, I don't know what to pray. How do I know what promises apply to me? We turn simply to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching us one of the central things that we should pray for is for his kingdom to be realized more and more. That people would come to know Jesus as king. That his promises would be fully realized when he returns. We're praying that every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That should be our longing. Because we see in Christ the source of our blessings. And we're leaning on them. That's where my hope lies. And I'm asking God to do what he has promised in order to be blessed and not cursed. And so if we don't know what to pray, then we should turn to what Jesus teaches us even in the Lord's Prayer. So David here appeals to God's promise, and he recognizes that that is the source of his hope. But notice the basis of it as well. He goes on in verses 27 and 28. He says, For you, O Lord, God of hosts, uh, God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Think about times when we lose courage. Maybe uh, if you're in a new setting, to go up and to speak to someone requires a great amount of courage. Uh, I don't know what they'll say if I go over and introduce myself. Uh, I, we might lack the courage. 
Um, maybe we're uh, afraid of the repercussions of acting because we don't know what will happen. But David here says, I've only prayed this prayer because you revealed it to me. I only have the boldness to do this because I'm living in response to your word. And again, that's how we operate. Whether it is addressing God as Father or whether it is pleading the promises of Christ, we are looking to God on the basis of what he has promised. And the, our certainty is knowing that God has revealed these things to us. So we take his word and we bring it back to him. And we say, do as you have promised. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And you see the logic of it as well. In verse 28, he says, O Lord, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this, uh, this great thing. Uh, David is appealing to what he understands. You are God. You are true. And you have promised this great thing. There's, there's a, a structure to it, isn't there? Do you, what do you know about God? Is he trustworthy? Is he faithful? What has he promised? And so rather than simply being astonished by the grandeur of what God is promising or the, the hope of eternal life or the forgiveness of all our wrongdoings or of contemplating how it could be that these things are true, very simply, with building blocks, we say, who is God? Is God faithful? What has God promised? And taking baby steps, we move forward on that logic. David is appealing to what he has been told, believing that God will do what he has promised, and he's leaning on it for his own salvation. And that's how we are to live in light of Christ. The message that the God-man has come to give his life as a ransom for sinners, that through his death and resurrection we can have eternal life, can stagger the mind. And yet we are to slow down and to say, who is God? Is God true? And what has God promised? And if we're believing in that, we can have confidence of eternal life. So David here moves from his praise to his prayer. The Apostle John tells us that we can have confidence if we ask anything according to his will, then we know that he hears us. So all of this is undergirding the, the courage or the basis of that petition. And the outworking of it, uh, very quickly, is the magnifying of God's name. All of this will bring about uh, the magnifying of God's name forever. Just as his promise endures forever, so God's glory will endure forever. But then secondly, it will also bring about the blessing of God's people forever. In verse 29, you have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. God has made great and awesome promises. His promises of reversing the curse of sin, of bringing his blessing, are now crystallized in an everlasting kingdom, which will be realized ultimately in the offspring of David, the son of David, the Lord Jesus. In him we can find blessing. His coming has brought the dawning of the kingdom of God. And so are we living in light of this promise? Are we trusting in him for eternal life? Does it amaze us? Does it amaze us to think that we can be redeemed from our sins? 
Does it amaze us that we can be called children of God and citizens in Christ's kingdom? Does it amaze us that we can be secure in his favor? And all of this is according to his own will. That our confidence is based on the will of our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we contemplate this prayer of David, that it would provoke and instill within us uh, a response of awe, knowing that our Savior is worthy of all praise. Lord, we ask that you would not only give us words to speak, but give us a devoted heart that is united to your name. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.